Thank you all for, uh, by the way, being part of last week's service. We were, we were busy getting a son married off. It, it worked. He is married. We eventually mailed in the marriage license, so that was a good thing I remembered. Eventually. No, thanks a lot for supporting Pastor Scott. I got to watch, uh, watch his message as I was driving around. I wasn't watching, I was listening, kids. So, but, I, you know, he brings a lot of energy. God really blessed us when he brought Scott and his family to, uh, to Hammock Street, all the way from Washington State. I understand there's a state way out west that is named after the capital of the United States. It's crazy. So anyway, and thank you for all the well wishes that you gave us. If you've ever married a child off you know that it is a whirlwind. I mean, it's crazy. And it took us days to sort of recover. And uh, our beloved grand dog, Jax, is still with us. So we're still kind of dealing with the energy. So anyway. But this is, kind of, you know, this is the new year. And, and we spoke you know, on the second. But now I get to focus. And to, today I want to bring you guys into what I was thinking about. And this year, I want to focus on building our, our Hammock Street Church community and getting people here connected to each other. Because that's what we are, is we are an ecclesia. We are a community of people that believe in Jesus Christ. And we're a community of people that understand that God's way of, of creating us and, and giving us all the instructions we need and all the things we need to do in life to have the abundant life for which we were created are, are valid and real and useful and time-tested. So we want to make sure that everybody gets to participate in that. So we're going to start off. Today we're going to talk about baptism. And so for our message today, everybody on site here, online, for all of you watching us online, you may want to take notes and you may want to share this message or this video, if you will, with, with friends who have questions about the topic of baptism. Because baptism is a topic that generates a lot of discussion in the church community. Now, it's interesting because as believers or Christians, and you know, I hesitate to use the word Christian a lot. Christian, that word is used only three times in the scripture. Two of those times, it's kind of derisive. There's one time it's not so bad, but it's generally, it's strange that that became the descriptor for all of us. But most people who consider themselves Christians agree that baptism is important, but that's where the agreement ends because people, people have different views of baptism. Who should be baptized? How should you be baptized? When should you be baptized? And basically, most people's opinions about such things start off shaped by their family. And then maybe, maybe they get adjusted when they meet somebody. But like all things, we, we tend to stick with the first thing that we ever learned, and that becomes our ingrained position. So I want to talk about all this stuff today because it's important for us to make decisions about baptism based upon the truth about baptism. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it today. Baptism is important to our faith. So I want to make sure we're all thinking about it the same way. And my goal today is that if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, my goal today is that you want to be baptized. That after today, you're a little bit more motivated to, bap- to be baptized. Because in all Christian organizations and in all Christian churches, baptism plays a big role and a big part. And even though we all do it differently and we all do it at different stages of life, it still is central. Now, why? Why is baptism central 
to the believer. Well, the reason baptism is central is because of something Jesus said. In fact, it's one of Jesus' most famous, if you will, statements. And here's what he said. He said this at the end of his ministry, and it sort of shows us exactly how important baptism is. So Jesus, while speaking to his disciples, here's what he said. In Matthew 28, 18, uh, 28 19, Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, before I continue on, I want you to understand what we just said. When you hear all nations, you should think about all people groups, all ethnicities. In fact, the word in Greek for nations is the word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity. So think about nations and ethnicity and resist, please, I beg you, resist the modern temptation to think in terms of race, okay? Without getting into it here, because that's not the topic of our message today, and it would take me a very long time, but we can talk about it if you want offline. The concept of race refers to a very modern notion of skin color. And that notion of skin color is extremely unbiblical. And it ought to be kept out of our conversations and thinking as followers of Jesus. Because don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul noted this in his letter to the church in Galatia. In Galatians 3.28, he said, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one. By the way, it does not say you're all identical or you're all exactly the same. It says you're all one in Christ Jesus. As far as God's concerned, we are all his image bearers. We are all his children. And it doesn't matter the hue of our skin. In fact, I was watching a a presentation the other day on one of those science channels. And they were talking about the fact that you can look at the map and you could see exactly how skin color developed. It has to do with vitamin D. It's really weird. But in the northern climes, in the northern latitudes in the world where people are exposed to less sun, their skin is lighter because that allows more vitamin D in. Whereas when you head down toward the equator where people are exposed to more sun, skin is darker because it doesn't need as much vitamin D as the people in the north. It's pretty much right across the board like that. It's very interesting. Isn't, isn't God interesting how he knows all this stuff before scientists tell him what he has to know? So anyway, Jesus said, we'll go back to that verse, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right. So up until this point, it is quite safe to agree that all Christians are on the same page. All believers in Jesus should be baptized because Jesus said, Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. All believers should be baptized. Now... After this verse, things go in all sorts of different directions. So it's difficult to track, and that causes a great deal of consternation among the believers. Now, a lot of people have been taught to worry about the souls of their children when they're born, and to even worry about their own personal salvation, all based upon their baptism status. So today, we're going to look at what the Scripture says about and what it implies regarding Baptism. We're going to look at how history has treated baptism. We're going to figure out where it all comes from and what we're supposed to do with it. Because when we put all those things together, baptism should not be a confusing topic. And at the end of today, if you are a Christian and you've never been baptized, I hope that you will be motivated to do so. We'll talk about why that's so important in a bit. 
So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for bringing us into that period of worship. Thank you for the time spent in communion. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be together, albeit for a short time, to focus on you, to learn about you, and to draw closer to you. So God, I ask as we look at your scripture this morning and we talk about baptism, that you would help us to understand it better and to desire it with our hearts. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to begin our discussion, we're going to start off with a little Greek. All right? A little Greek lesson. This is not a flex, because, but it's important because the New Testament, of course, was originally written in Greek. So we're going to start off with some Greek. The Greek word in your English Bible, all that means is a Bible translated into English, in your English Bible, that's translated baptism or baptize is the Greek word baptizo. Hmm, wonder how they got the translation, right? We're going to get there. All right, here's how that happened. When scholars first began to translate the New Testament from the original Greek into English, they generally employed a word-by-word translation method. Later translations would actually become more accurate because they included not only word-by-word, but also concepts and also explanatory translations, which you'll understand in a minute. So here's an example of the word-by-word situation. Now, the Greek word for God is the word theos. In the Bible, the translators, the English translators, render, which means translate, that word theos as God. When the translators saw the word luo in the Greek, they translated it as loose or free. Okay? So whatever the Greek word was, they wrote the corresponding English word. Okay, so that's easy. However, there were a couple of words, a couple of Greek words that didn't actually get translated from Greek into English for the English Bible. And one of those words was baptizo. Meaning that when we see the word baptizo, it is not a translation. It's what we call a transliteration. All right, what's that? A transliteration is when you take a word from one language and instead of translating it, you take the letters of the original language and you transfer those letters to the translated language. No, that sounds confusing, but it really isn't. I'm going to give you an easy example. There is a Hebrew phrase that because you all live in South Florida, you actually are familiar with. You already know this Hebrew phrase. I'm going to put it up here on the the board. Ready? It says, Mazel Tov. Okay, you read Hebrew from right to left, mazel tov. Mazel tov means congratulations, generally speaking, okay? So mazel tov is a transliteration, not a translation. When we say mazel tov, we say mazel tov. That's the Hebrew. We don't say congratulations. You can see that it's a transliteration when you substitute the English letters for the Hebrew letters. So now you see it? Mazel tov. All we've done is take the Hebrew word, put it in English letters, and now you can read the word, right? Instead of translating the word, we transliterate the word. All right. So now, instead of translating this word, that's Greek for baptizo, instead of translating it to its English meaning, they transliterated it into English. Baptize. Okay? That's how that works. So it's not a translation. It's a transliteration. But here comes the issue. Over the years, 
Since the first English Bible translation, which was translated in 1382 by a guy named John Wycliffe, who was killed for his trouble, by the way. Since 1832, the English word baptize has become a very religious word. Now, when we hear the word baptize, we immediately think church. We immediately think Christian. So we have to go back in history to understand its origin. So we have to go back to the first century A.D. to understand what's going on. So, in the first century A.D., so the first century after Jesus was born, the word baptizo was a very common word. All it meant was to wash or to plunge or to soak or to dip. And throughout Greek literature, you find this word describing people who drowned and ships that sank or sunk or, or simply somebody washing, a general washing process. So that's the word baptizo. You with me so far? Okay, good. I think you're tracking. Now I'm going to muddy the water a little bit. In our English Bibles, the translators sometimes translated baptizo, and they translated it as wash. But other times they translated or or transliterated it as baptize. So sometimes they translated, sometimes they transliterated. Okay, what do I mean? So here's one example. One time when Jesus was talking about the religious leaders, here's what he said. This is in Mark's gospel in chapter 7. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. What's the word in the Greek? Baptizo. So that's the original Greek holding to the tradition of the elders. So here, baptizo meant that the Jews washed their hands and their face before they ate the food they brought home from the market. Obviously, it doesn't mean that they needed to be baptized every time they ate. Okay, does that make sense? Mark even continues in the next verse. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they baptizo. And they observe many other traditions, such as the baptizo of cups, pitchers, and kettles, right? The word used to describe the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles is our word, baptizo. There are other examples, but I think you get the point from that. Baptizo is a common word that means to wash. So the question arises, all right, how did it happen? How did this common word that simply means to wash or to dip take on the theological or religious meanings or connotations? All right, I'm going to tell you how. Back in the time, back in the Hebrew Bible, in the time of the Old Testament, as well as that, we call it the intertestamental period, which is a fancy way of saying the period of time between the ending of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the writing of the New Testament is about a 400-year period. During that time, Gentiles, which basically Gentile comes from the Hebrew word goyim, which refers to other nations. So there was the nation of Israel, and then there were the goyim, all the other nations, okay? So back in those days, the Gentiles would visit Judea, they'd visit Israel, they'd visit Jerusalem, and as they did so, they began to appreciate the Jewish people. Jewish people were a people that were disciplined, a people that were focused on study, a people that seemed healthier than the other people, and so they, they were very ad, they were admired by the Greek and Roman society. And as they came to appreciate the Jewish people, they wanted to become Jewish, some of them. So they would go to the outer court of the temple. If you guys remember the old temple pictures, it was that big Solomon's temple, which became King Herod's temple. And they would go and they would stand the outer court, which is known as the court of the Gentiles. And they would kind of hang out there and they would worship in the same way they saw the Jews worshiping. And so that's what they did for a long time. In connection with that, they started to ask a question. Can I ever become Jewish? Even though I'm not born Jewish, can I become Jewish? Now, 
Of course, they couldn't be reborn Jewish, but they could begin to act like Jews. Tornado warning. Just everybody's just got notified at the same time. Hang in there. We're very safe here. So we're in, we're in good shape. All right. Okay, all the notices are off. We continue. So they started to dress like the Jews. They started to worship like the Jews. They started to act like the Jews. And over the years, the Jewish leaders came up with a process by which the Gentiles could become Jewish. So over more time, a long list of requirements was developed. So here's where it landed. If you were a Gentile and you lived two to 300 years before Jesus... Or even if you lived in the first century before Jesus and you wanted to become Jewish, there were a few requirements. The first requirement was the men were required to have some surgery. Now, I'm guessing that meant that the first early converts were mostly women. And if you're not tracking along with me, kind of elbow the person next to you. They'll explain it to you. No, seriously. The first requirement for a man was that he get circumcised. All right, there are more requirements. Then they had to participate in a meal that somehow reflected the essence of Passover. We're not really sure what that meal looked like. Then there was a requirement to acknowledge the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament as law, and agree to follow it. And then they had to offer a sacrifice at the temple. There were some memorization requirements as well. And finally, converts had to take part in a ceremonial washing. By the way, the Jews are still all about ceremonial washings. In the, in the observant Jewish communities, there is something called a mikvah, and they're constantly washing things all the time, washing themselves, washing things all the time. So... Interestingly, a Jewish ceremonial washing is something a person does alone by his or her self. So for the Gentile convert to Judaism, it represented the cleansing of the person from their connection to their ancestral people, their ethnos, their sin, and their old way of life. And it represented the adoption of their new identification as a Jew who worshiped the God of the Jews. Now, In parts of the world where the Jews were predominantly Greek-speaking, the term they would associate with this ceremonial washing was, any guesses? Baptizo, okay? Though there were several kinds of Jewish ceremonial washings, baptizo became the word they described the ceremonial washing that was specifically required to becoming a Jew and leaving one's, let's call it, Gentileness behind. All right, so that's our background. So now we fast forward to about 30 AD, give or take is the time when when Jesus uh, is beginning his public ministry. Now, in about 30 AD, something important happened in history. One day, a wild-eyed man who wore animal skins and ate bugs, flavored with honey, so they weren't so bad, showed up at the Jordan River and he started preaching, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Anybody know what that guy's name was? Yes, very good Bible scholars. John, Yohanan in Hebrew. And this was his message to the Jewish people. God is about to do something that's never been done before. And if you are not right with God, you're going to miss it. He continued, and I'm paraphrasing some scripture here. I know you're already Jewish, but that's not good enough. And I know you're a child of Abraham, but that's not good enough either. 
And I know that you worship at the temple, and I know that you make your sacrifices, but that's not good enough either. You're going to need to repent and surrender your life to God. You're going to need to repent. That was John's message. And then John did the strangest thing. He went down into the Jordan River and said, if you're ready to repent, I want you to come down here into the water with me. Remember, I told you the typical Jewish conversion was a solitary thing. John's asking people to be baptized by him. And these people lined up and they presented themselves for some kind of ceremonial watching, washing. And when they described the ceremonial washing that John was doing, can you guess what term they used? Yes, you can. They used the term baptizo. And the Jewish people understood that John was not talking about washing off their dirt. They understood that he was associating this washing with his message of repentance. And it was something new, but it was similar to the way that a Gentile would become a Jew through a ceremonial washing. All right. Now, they understood that somehow the Jews would be becoming something different through this washing. I'm sorry, the Gentiles becoming something different through this washing. So after a while, John got a nickname. They began to refer to him as John Hobaptistes, which morphed into John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Here's a little interesting tidbit. Baptistes is a derivative word of baptizo. That word is never, ever used in any other literature. It is only used in Christian literature. That term literally originated, started in the Greek New Testament. So from that fact, we can surmise that when people saw what John the Baptist was doing, they didn't have a word for it. It was similar to something that had been done, but they didn't have a word for this. No one had ever ceremonially washed another person. Once more, in Jewish culture, you always baptizoed yourself as a symbol of the fact that you were dying to your Gentileness and coming alive to your new Jewishness. The only time you ever see this Greek terminology is associated with Christianity beginning in the first century because it was something brand new. Okay, back to our story. So people lined up for John to baptizo them. And before long, people began identifying with John the Baptist. And by identifying with him, I mean they're acknowledging, you know what? I believe what John is saying here. And I'm going to go public with my belief. When the religious people got wind of this new thing, they checked it out. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they went to check this out. We go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when John, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, which is not really the nicest greeting, just FYI, in case you see somebody coming in and you want to say, hey, don't start this way. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit, in keeping with repentance. And then John told him of the one that was still to come. John said this, I baptize with water for repentance. Remember, this is a new thing. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so John sets this up, says somebody's coming. This is going to be a whole new thing. Well, one day John is doing his thing. He's doing his baptizing and people are lining up to participate. So you've got to take a moment and picture the scene. So they're at the Jordan River, which is, which is a public space. 
And got to imagine other people were at the river doing river things, like washing their clothes or washing their dishes or watching their kids splash around. And then they kind of look over, and there's this crazy guy who's wearing camel's hair and eating bugs and saying crazy things. And they got to be going, who are these kooks? I mean, this is crazy stuff. But John stopped, and he looked up to the bank. And he said, behold, right? Behold. I always hear James Earl Jones' voice in there, right? John stopped, looked at the bank. He said, behold, which basically just means look. So here's what he said in John 1, 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Essentially, he said, listen up, people. You know the guy I've been talking about all this time? The, the one who was before me, but he's coming after me, which probably confused the heck out of them. Like, what does that even mean? Well, that guy, he's right there. He's here. And with that, Jesus walked down into the river. And Jesus said to John, I need you to baptizo me, to wash me. And John was stunned by that request at first. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So why did John consent? Because Jesus knew that if he allowed John to baptize him, the crowd would know that Jesus was affirming John's message. So John the Baptist, the sinner, baptized Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. So now again, Scripture doesn't give us these details, but it's safe to say the people on the riverbank were looking going, what is happening? Like they didn't have a clue of what was happening in that moment. But then something stranger happened. Then Jesus' disciples, you guys know, the 12, they started baptizoing people. Whenever someone heard the message of Jesus and believed in their hearts that Jesus was indeed God's Messiah, the very one for whom they'd been waiting all their lives, they lined up and Jesus' disciples baptized them, thus publicly providing evidence of the fact that they believed in Jesus and his message of salvation. In fact, there's an account in the book of Acts, which we talked about quite a bit a few weeks ago, of some people who were baptized by John, who, who left the region after they were baptized and found out years later that the Jesus had come and then they had to get re-baptized because they were baptized into John, but they got baptized into Jesus. Baptism became a public symbol of identifying with the message of a person. And then, of course, there was the whole Jewish ceremonial aspect to it of being cleansed and moving on and leaving something behind. So that's how the practice of baptism began. John the Baptist was the first baptizer, and his baptism pointed to the coming of Jesus. And after that, Jesus' disciples did the baptizing. There's actually no record of Jesus ever baptizing anybody. And when Jesus left the earth, he said, basically, okay, listen, if you don't remember everything else I said, you need to go and tell everybody everything you can remember that I've taught. And when they come to faith in me, when in their hearts they become my disciples and followers, they should be baptized as a public display of their faith. Okay, so that's how that all happened. So now I want to give you three points to sum all of this stuff up. So here are the points. Number one. Baptism is a public declaration of a new association. Baptism is a public declaration. I'm going public with the fact that I'm now associated with and connected to Jesus and his teachings. And along with this new association and connection, 
I'm embracing everything that Jesus is about, okay? Baptism is a public declaration of a new association. All right, number two. Baptism is a personal declaration of a new association. It's not just a public declaration. It's also a personal declaration. I've heard baptism described as an outward expression of an inward reality. So before I go on to number three, I want to call a quick timeout. So timeout. See, I kind of feel like up until this point, and you guys know this is the way I like to present things. It's pretty linear, pretty, pretty straightforward. But I can't let you go without having something to ponder. So let's muddy the waters just a little bit. In the New Testament, the great majority of people who were baptized were people who decided on their own to be baptized. This is the reason why many churches don't baptize infants and young children. Because infants and young children don't quite understand what it's all about. By the way, whenever a young child is baptized, it does not reflect on their own personal faith or does it or nor does it confer salvation on them or remove their original sin. So if you were taught differently, I guess I'm the one to break it to you. It doesn't cleanse a child of original sin. It doesn't get them saved. It doesn't do anything like that. At the end of today's message, I'm going to talk to you about some further steps. If you're interested in being baptized, and if you have questions about baptizing children, talk to me afterwards and we'll talk about it. Okay? So back to our message. Here's our last point. I just said it. Baptism is not a condition of salvation. Baptism is evidence of salvation. All right. Now, do you remember the story in Luke 23, and you're all thinking right now, no, I don't, but you really do. Remember, it's the story of the criminal who was crucified next to Jesus. Remember, in the scripture, we read that Jesus was crucified in between two kakorgoi. Kakorgoi, which is the Greek word for criminals. You've heard that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. That's actually a bad translation. It's a remnant from that Wycliffe 1382 translation, he used the word thief and it just stuck. And it stuck all these years in the English Bible. The word criminal is much more accurate. Anyway, that criminal that was crucified next to Jesus was moments from death. So there was no way for him to go follow Jesus and learn all his ways and learn all his sayings and learn all his teachings. He, couldn't, he didn't have time to do all that. He was literally nailed to a cross about to die. But in the last minute of his life, he recognized who Jesus was. And this is what he said to him. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in response, Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said, I'll see you when I get to where I'm going. So in that situation, that criminal was not baptized, right? He didn't have a chance. He was crucified. But he still went to heaven, okay? That's where we learn that baptism is important. It's a very important part of our faith, but it is not some supernatural gotcha that if you don't get it done, now you're in big trouble. There's no, to quote Andy Stanley, if you don't, he won't with Jesus. Jesus doesn't work that way. Baptism is all about going public with something that was a private commitment on the inside. Baptism is not a condition of salvation. Baptism is evidence of salvation. So here's the bottom line. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't been baptized since you became a Christian, you need to get baptized. It's a point of obedience, okay? 
It's a point of discipleship. If you've committed your life to Jesus, if you've admitted you're a sinner, totally incapable of the perfect life that would be necessary to make you acceptable to God, and you've believed that Jesus lived the perfect life for you, he died on a cross paying the penalty that sinners deserve, he was put into a tomb, but he rose from the dead, and then after appearing to hundreds of witnesses, he ascended to heaven, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And if knowing that, you've committed your life to Jesus, you can enjoy God's gift of eternal life, and you were baptized. Even if it was a different church, you don't need to be rebaptized. But if you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized, and we want to baptize you. Now, as to the form, believe it or not, it's not the most important thing in the world. Now, Candidly, I like baptizing by immersion. I like dunking people, okay? That's what I like. Immersions are often done in church and in swimming pools and even in South Florida in our beautiful ocean just down the street. We feel like here in in the western part of town, we're really, really far away from the beach. Ask somebody who's really far from the beach if we're really far from the beach. We're eight miles from the beach. It's pretty close. But it's interesting, throughout the church history, people were baptized all sorts of different ways. There were places in the world where there was almost no water, and yet people became believers. So people have come up with all sorts of methods for baptizing. Sometimes it simply wasn't possible for a person to immerse themselves in water to even get wet. You know, I know some of you know this because you're from those places. In a lot of parts of the world, at certain times of the year, it's dangerous to immerse in water and then get out and stand in the elements, right? Now, I know it's hard to fathom for us in South Florida, but you, some, some places you can die if you're exposed and you're wet. So there's a lot of ways to be baptized, but the command remains the same. Jesus said believers should be baptized. And one last thing. If you'd like to be baptized here inside of the church, our next scheduled baptism will be in about three or four weeks, February 20th. Somebody count the weeks. If you're interested, here's what we'd like to do. I'd like to film your testimony. <gasps> oh, I was interested until you've said that. Yeah. Don't panic. Just a short three-minute description of how you came to faith. It's going to be me and somebody running the camera and you. So nothing to be afraid of even though I know you're afraid, but we're going to help you through it. Now, I'm not making this, we're not making this a non-negotiable, okay? But it's really, just think of it as a sincere and enthusiastic request. Now, I know that a lot of people are nervous about speaking on a video. They're really nervous about strangers seeing it, people that you don't know here, streaming it on the internet. I, I know. Not everyone is weird as I am and likes to talk to a bunch of people. I get it. I'm married to a person like that. She doesn't like that sort of thing. But I hope you'll trust me on this. A, the process won't be that bad. In fact, the process will be great. I've got questions. We'll ask you the questions and help you order your thoughts and get you right through there. Again, you won't be exposed to any strangers other than me. And that's strange. But, and who, you know, someone shooting, rolling the camera. He's sitting here with me, and I haven't asked him yet, but he knows I'm going to ask. He laughed. Okay, good. So if you're thinking that nobody wants to hear your story or nobody needs to hear your story, I think you're wrong. See, baptism is a public expression of your faith, and hearing your faith story might be just the thing that God uses to move someone else to their own life-giving faith in Jesus, the Savior of the world. And not only that, we're called by God to be his witnesses, to tell other people what Jesus has done in our lives. And if you 
record a video, that might expose your witness to more people than you would ever talk to in a year or more maybe. Now, I got to tell you, and I don't know if you've ever watched these things. I've watched hundreds of these baptism videos. And every time I watch one, every single time I watch one, my faith in Jesus grows more and more. I love hearing people's stories, how they come to faith. And I can promise you, your life will change too. Your faith will grow too. Like the crowds being baptized by John the Baptist and the disciples at the Jordan River, which was the crossroads and the the meeting spot of their area, a video allows us to kind of modernize that, to have a modern version of a crossroads and a meeting spot. The video can be very powerful. So if you want to be baptized in the church, I'm asking that you at least give serious consideration to recording the video. Come talk to me about it. And if I'm unable to persuade you, so be it. Now, if you prefer to be baptized at the beach, our next beach baptism will take place on Saturday, February 26th. Okay, Saturday, February 26th. We will record the beach baptism. If you want to do a video for that, absolutely let me know. But we will insist on it less because, of course, you know, we won't all be there looking at you. So let's wrap it up. I love baptisms. (laughs) They're They're the greatest thing. And I'm really excited about the baptisms that are coming up in February. And I can't wait to see how God uses these baptisms to grow his community here at Hammock Street. Because we know that God will bless our community as we publicly declare our faith as we're commanded. Amen? Now, before I dismiss everybody, before we pray, a few quick things. Again, right after we're dismissed today, we're going to have a short meeting in, let's see if I can put that up, short meeting in room one, right across diagonally from the sanctuary, just off this lobby. I'm going to answer baptism questions, and we'll start getting everybody kind of uh, on track to formulate their own stories and talk some more about the video testimonies. If you are watching online and you'd like to be baptized here, you can go to hammockstreetchurch.com forward slash baptism. There's an online baptism form. Fill that out. Obviously, you're going to need to be here if you want me to dunk you. So fill that out and someone will get in touch with you with further details. All right, you got that? Okay, also, next week... We are starting a brand new series called Starting Point. Starting Point is based upon the premise that everything has a beginning. Every person has a beginning. Every idea has a beginning. Every journey starts somewhere. And whether it's one small step in a new direction or a major event, from that point forward, everything's changed. Nothing is ever the same. In the new series we're doing, Starting Point, We're going to be looking at the starting point of our faith, starting point of Christianity. Now, I promise you that in this series, you will learn more about our faith than you ever imagined. It'll be a great series to invite a friend to, somebody who's interested in our faith, somebody who's kicking it around, somebody who has questions, somebody who even wants to debunk our faith. Invite them if they want to know more about Jesus, and I think they'll love it. I'm looking forward to getting started. That is all I have for today. I hope you guys have a great week. Let's pray, and then we're dismissed. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for just the excitement that a new year brings. God, as we head into this year, we all pray for health of our nation and the world. We pray for our safety. We pray for this community as we continue to grow, as we continue to recover from the disruption of COVID. God, we know that you have big things planned for us, and we're looking forward to seeing how you'll use us to glorify you and grow your kingdom. So God, dismiss us now today. Allow us to go into this world 
as cheerful, loving witnesses of your glory. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.